was completely oblivious to the whole thing really. Um, you know, I had no idea that we were in trouble. I had no idea that, you know, we were hurtling towards the ground so quickly and that something had gone wrong and um, that the instructor had lost control. And yeah, it all came together pretty quickly though. And I realized when we hit the ground that, you know, something's not right here. The center and all stations of the child, but it's not up to 48 again. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. The Royal Flying Doctor Service provides 24-7 emergency medical retrieval services and gets called to all manner of accidents and injuries across rural and remote Australia. In this podcast, I interview a courageous Tasmanian man who had his life drastically change when a skydiving lesson went wrong. As with any accident, the final outcome is determined by the first responders on the scene, the speed of emergency response, in this case Ambulance Tasmania, and access to a vitally needed tertiary hospital. That is where the RFDS came in. Joe Chivers has an inspiring story to tell. G'day Joe. Hello, how are we going? Really good. Before we get into the details of your first and last skydiving lesson, tell me a little bit about how you were doing as a 20-year-old. Yeah, so at 20 years old, I had no idea how the world worked. I was training to be a manager at a, a local retail firm um, and, yeah, just uh, ended a relationship that had been uh, going for a little while. I just had no clue about life. Um, without knowing it, I had some quite severe mental health issues and just didn't know how to identify them. I had had a few plans in place. I'd, I'd purchased a, a two-bedroom unit and the finance fell through last minute. I'd alienated myself from my friends and family and really only had mountain bike riding to fall back on to help me out with activities and, and that social interaction. Yeah, so it was, it was an interesting time and one that I was very, very lucky to get through. It sounds like it was pretty tough at that point you were still living at home? Yeah, so I'd, I'd moved back home to save for a deposit on that unit. Luckily, I had that, that savings because it came in handy later on. But, you know, that was a really beneficial time for me to do that. You know, I was earning quite a good amount of money and I had those career aspirations. But I wasn't cemented in that idea. I'd, I'd entertained the thought of joining the army full time and representing the country and um, serving the country or you know, doing something along those lines. And I wasn't playing very much sport. I played local footy, you know, always had a dream of, of playing football at the highest level, uh, but I was a long way away from that. So, yeah, it was it was really tricky and hard to navigate those times. And why did you decide to go skydiving? Well, it was a, not something I'd ever thought about prior to it actually happening. So I just turned 21 and about a month after my birthday, 
one of my very good friends from school, uh, he asked me, hey, I'm, I'm going to go skydiving for my 21st. You want to come? I said, yeah, of course. Didn't think any more of it. His name's Josh, and he uh, had never thought about skydiving himself either, but he wanted to celebrate his 21st with his friends, and yeah, it just came up that that was an activity that he'd like to try, and let's give it a go. About oh, a month later, they'd made a booking, and I couldn't actually make it on that day. So we're in the same position. We couldn't go on that original date, so we had to book a month after the main group. And those guys were saying how good it was and how great it was and the weather was so good and they had such a, a great time and we were really enthusiastic about trying it. And up until that stage, I probably lived a bit of a daredevil life. You know, I was a mountain biker and loved going fast and, and um, you know, driving uh, around tracks really quickly and, you know, had entertained the thought of doing some amateur rally stuff and, you know, those sorts of things. But skydiving was never really on the agenda. Now, I've never done skydiving, and I'll be honest, I never planned to. Um, yeah. <laughs> how were you feeling uh, as you were heading up in that plane and over over Hobart, right? You were over Hobart or next to Hobart? Yeah. How were you feeling at the time? Oh, it was a little bit exhilarating, but I was not nervous at all, which is interesting. Um, I used to get really nervous before playing football, and that was the only time I was ever nervous, and to this day, have only been nervous when it comes to sport. But going up in the plane, I just sort of tried to block everything out and the largest shopping centre in Hobart looked like a, a tiny pinprick when we were up there. And so the plan was that the person that was most nervous of the two people that were in the plane, myself and my other friend, Jared, uh, would go first. And we paper, rock, scissored, I think, for to see who would go first. And that would actually be a really big factor in, in what would happen next. But, yeah, that was the case. And, and I jumped out first and oh, I was just an exhilarating experience. So you're strapped to another person, right? Like this yeah. is your first time ever jumping out of a plane. How does it work? So we were on the ground when we first to learn about all the safety equipment. We weren't instructed on how to land in water that I can remember. We weren't instructed what to do if someone had become unconscious, whether that was myself or the instructor. All we were told was to grab the back of our knees and hold them up as we're coming into land when the when the instructor taps you on the shoulder or lets you know verbally. Yeah, so we, we sort of went through those sort of processes. And then when we get uh, to the airport, which is the smaller airport here in Hobart, not the, the main international terminal, we then are secured to that person. Um, who has the parachute on their back. One parachute for two people. I presume it's a bigger parachute to be yeah. able to take the weight. Or <laughs> I think so. There's, there's also a secondary parachute in, in there as well. So there's that uh, element of safety um, and precaution if, if something goes wrong with the main parachute. And you're attached to that person and that harness in about five different spots with different clips and things like that. Yeah, we uh, strapped in and got on the way. So they opened the door and you got the rock, paper, scissors deal that you ended up going first. So how does how does the process of leaving the plane work? Yeah, so there's a small platform that's about oh, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres on the outside of the plane, just at the door. And I had to put my feet on that little tiny thing there. And then I'm not sure I was nervous, but then I realised what we were going to do. We're about to fall out of this plane. We're going to free fall for a period of time. Uh, and then so 
we just sat on the edge and he counted down, I think, from three and then we just fell. Are you under him, like, as you're going down? Yep. Or were you spinning or how, how does that work as yeah. you're coming out of the plane? So he fell forwards, um, so I'm underneath, so kind of like that. And, yeah, he's uh, in control of the parachute and uh, all the other safety equipment. The I think it's the altimeter is or the... Um, the device they measure the altitude with uh, and also has a, a handheld camera or a wrist-mounted camera for the video as well. How long did you freefall for? Yeah, so generally I believe that um, we're supposed to jump out at 10,000 feet, but we actually jumped out higher at about 12,000 feet. It was to accommodate for the weather on that day. Oh, what sort of weather was it? Well, it turned out to be one of the windiest days on record for 2009. There was a, a report that one of the f- games of football was called off here in Hobart due to that wind. And I'm not sure exactly how true that is, but it was about 100 kilometre winds on the ground. So, you know, 12,000 feet in the air, it's obviously going to be pretty blustery. There's no question that we shouldn't have been up there in the first place, but I chose to put my trust in a professional. Wow. Okay. So you're free falling and then I presume he pulls the parachute at some point. What What do you remember of that journey down? Yeah, I remember it being really peaceful. Um, there was not a sound up there. You couldn't hear the, the traffic on the road or, you know, you couldn't hear birds chirping or the, the plane was well and truly gone by that stage or, or I couldn't find it or see it anyway. And it was so serene and picturesque just floating after the parachute had opened. Yeah, that was that was a really nice feeling. And the free fall was the exhilarating part, but then it was just about, well, I, I started thinking about what I was going to do the rest of the day. I thought, oh, we're going to go for a bike ride later and probably going to have lunch somewhere and just try to soak it all in. And, yeah. And then what happened? So we jumped out over Sandy Bay, uh, which is one of the southern suburbs of Hobart, to land at the Cenotaph, which is uh, where the War Memorial is. There's a large uh, grass area, but due to that weather, we actually got blown off course. And I didn't know that at the time, but we'd been blown over to the other side of the river, so on the eastern shore. And as we came down, um, the instructor identified a grass oval to land on. And as we came down level with the Tasman Bridge, it acted as a windbreak and took the updraft out of the chute. And we fell about 30 metres and... I had my hands behind my knees, so I landed on my bum first, and the instructor used me as a cushion and landed on top of me, and uh, I just remember instant searing pain, and I'd never broken a bone in my body until that day, but turns out later on we found out that I'd I'd broken my back uh, at my L1 vertebrae. So the parachute had folded up, and you and the instructor plummeted some eight to ten stories from the ground. As you fell like a dead weight, did you think, oh, my God, I'm going to die? I was completely oblivious to the whole thing, really. Um, You know, I had no idea that we were in trouble. I had no idea that, you know, we were hurtling towards the ground so quickly and that something had gone wrong and um, that the instructor had lost control. And, yeah, it all came together pretty quickly, though, and I realised when we hit the ground that, you know, something's not right here. Did you immediately know on impact that that something had gone terribly wrong? I knew that I couldn't feel from my waist down and I I didn't think that was quite right. But, you know, in that moment, I I just had no idea what to think. I I thought, oh, I'll just go on with the rest of the day as as I planned. But obviously that uh, wasn't going to happen. Was it 
uh, an experience that really left you sort of floundering for trying to uh, come up with a course of action or a, a way to respond? Absolutely. I, I was just screaming in pain and I was just, I had no idea what was happening. I had no idea, no clue. And, and it was just completely unfathomable that, you know, that I injured myself or, or that, you know, someone had done this on purpose or, um, you know, that it, something had gone wrong. So you're on the ground in extreme pain. Yep. Was anybody nearby? Did anybody see it? It was coincidentally, it's a very, very popular running track um, going past that area. So we had a doctor, a nurse and a vet that actually came over and I'm so glad the vet was there. But uh, yeah, I was seen to straight away and without my knowing until later, the instructor actually tried to take the shoot off me and do a runner. He was swearing his head off. He, he just couldn't believe what was happening. I'm screaming in pain. I couldn't feel from my waist down. I had no idea what was happening. But luckily the, the doctor, the nurse and the vet were there to secure me and make sure that the instructor didn't try and take that shoot off or wasn't success, successful in doing so. Yeah, they called the ambulance and that was about all I sort of... I, I remember bits and pieces after that, but I remember the green whistle and I, I, I thought I was in a bit of trouble, so... So the instructor was trying to shirk his responsibility and attempted to do a runner. I understand you later tried to sue him, but he actually skipped the country and waited until the statute of limitations had passed before returning. Is that right? And that is correct. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. Yeah. Well... It is lucky that you did have a doctor and a nurse and a vet <laughs> uh, that witnessed and acted as first responders when you hit the ground. I, I suspect if nobody had been there, you would have been in even more trouble. I agree. Yep, absolutely. Well, what had you been wearing that day? Were you just, you know, jeans and shirt and, yeah. and a parachute harness or? Yep, yep. So I'd actually um, just gotten some new clothes for my birthday. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll wear them today. Mum's still not very happy with me that they had to cut all my clothing off to secure me in the, um, the the board that I had to be strapped to and uh, the neck brace on and made sure I was nice and secure and safe and everything had to go. <laughs> Did you at that point realise how severe your injury was? I had no idea. I was screaming in pain and, yeah, completely threw me. Um, I didn't know which way to turn, which way to look, what, how to think. You know, I didn't know who was helping me or who was around me. All I wanted to do was to get back home. A big confusion. Yeah. Were you scared? I don't think I was particularly scared at that point. I was very lost. I had no idea what was happening at the time. And as I said, I was screaming in pain and, and I'd never experienced anything like that before. That threw me. It really did and, and mm. made me very confused about what was happening and what was going to happen next. Yeah. Were, you, were the first responders reassuring you that it was all going to be okay? Absolutely. Yeah. They were wonderful. They were really calming and um, they, they probably knew what was happening um, and I certainly had more idea of what was happening than I did and they were able to you know, really comfort me and assure me that uh, everything would be fine and that you know, help was on the way and get that, that process started. I understand that when you have a spinal injury or a neck injury that it's so important that you're immobilised. Do you remember much of that journey from the landing and the, the injury itself through to actually arriving at the hospital? Uh, bits and pieces. I mean, I'd never been in an ambulance in my life until that point. I was so scared and, and just didn't know what was going on. At one stage, I remember thinking that, oh, this is what happens when you go skydiving. You can't film you from your waist down. You know, obviously that's not the case. But, um, yeah, it was bumpy getting across the oval. 
and then back onto the road. And it was early in the morning. It was about 10 a.m. Um, or 10.30 a.m. when I got into the ambulance. From there, it's, it starts to become quite vague. Uh, but I know I was transported to the Hobart Hospital um, where I went into emergency and mum and dad turned up and then the doctor told me what the diagnosis was initially and they said, look, you'll probably never walk again. And I, I sort of just brushed that off. I had no idea what that meant. I thought, oh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to be back on my feet in like two hours, aren't I? Surely this is going to be fine. Wow. You're in the emergency ward, your mum, your dad are there, your doc- the doctor's saying not good. What what happens at that stage? Yeah, so at that stage, things become really patchy for me. I know I then went into the intensive care unit because I had a visit from the skydiving company and the instructor that was attached to me. I was really out of it and they were apologising profusely and just sort of said, you know, these things happen what can we do, what's going to happen from here, and no idea where they went after that, but I never heard from them again. And then my mum and sister came back into the hospital room where I was staying, and they asked, who were those people? And they assumed they were my friends, and I said, no, that's the Skydiving Company. And my sister ran after them but couldn't find them. I'm pretty glad she didn't actually get to them because I don't think they would have walked out of the hospital after doing something like they did. And then from there... Uh, there were discussions about what was going to happen next and, and where I'd have to go. Where did they say you needed to go next? They said I had to go to Melbourne um, because we don't have a specific spinal ward here in Tasmania. They're not equipped for surgery or uh, any sort of initial care. Um, so at the Austin Hospital, uh, they have a specific unit called 3 North, which is their spinal ward. And so I was prepped to jump on the plane and head over which was an experience in itself. I remember the weather was pretty poor at the time. There was a little bit of rain around. Due to the weather, I think there was an option to take the helicopter straight over to uh, Melbourne, but they decided against that due to the weather. I just remember seeing all these instruments and different gauges and things in the, in the, in the plane. And my mum was with me. Um, they allowed mum to come on the plane with me. And that was really great. She held my hand the whole time. And they'd given her sort of 15 to 30 minutes to get packed and ready. No idea how long we're going to be in Victoria for. She'd packed the lid of her toothpaste, but not the tube. And she'd packed one sock and she'd only taken one pair of undies. And Oh, it sounds like your poor mum was pretty distressed at seeing yeah. her son in this state. Absolutely. I think I can sympathise with your mum. Yeah, the funny thing is that she said to me that morning, don't go skydiving. And I brushed it off and thought, oh, no, I know better. It'd be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm bulletproof, which of course isn't the case. If I had have, um, you know, taken her advice, I don't know where I'd be today. I'd, I probably wouldn't be here right now. I'd probably be six feet under. But things would have been a lot different. That's for sure. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback. And Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state And we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. 
the Flying Doctor takes you to Melbourne and you are in this special hospital where they look after spinal injuries. What is the the process and what is the rehabilitation? So the process sort of starts when they ascertain what exactly what's happened and what's going to happen from there. So a plan is put in place. I'm not part of that plan, of course, in that I don't know what's exactly happening. All I'm told is that I'm going to have to have surgery on my spine. So I had a burst fracture at my L1 vertebrae. So basically the vertebrae just popped and sent a fragment into my spinal cord, damaging it and quite bruising it quite badly. That meant that I had to have a spinal fusion. So they actually put a cage in that uh, encompasses the vertebrae that popped as well as the bottom and top uh, vertebrae above and below that. That meant that I've got about $20,000 worth of titanium in my spine and supposedly some cement. I don't know if uh, that was just to harden me up or what that was but all that surgery was done I think I was on the table for about eight hours and then spinal shock sets in so what's spinal shock yeah so spinal shock it it lasts for about roughly three to four maybe even sometimes five years and it's the swelling around that area that's broken so the spinal cord is is so intricate and so important to the body that it uh, when it is damaged it takes so long to heal but it is one of the only healing parts of the body. It just takes a lifetime to heal. So by the time I'm 80, my spinal cord will probably be just about back to normal, potentially. Uh, <laughs> but I won't be able to use it by then, uh, of course. But um, yeah, once that spinal shock uh, set in, the muscles started to atrophy away in my legs that I wasn't using. You know, blood flow was impeded. Things I'd never had a clue about started to, to happen. You know, I didn't have much sensation when I needed to go to the toilet. My sexual function disappeared because all of the the muscles and body functions under the level of injury had been impacted in some way. That spinal shock compounds that uh, those issues. That's really scary. So does that mean then that bladder control, bowel control, all those things become really difficult because you just can't feel? Yeah, absolutely. So the funny thing is like the misconception about a spinal cord injury is that you can't walk and that's the hardest thing but it's not it's it's that bladder and bowel incontinence and the loss of independence that um impacted me the most followed by mental health because i, I still hadn't fixed all the mental health issues that i'd had prior to my accident so how are you doing at this point like are we talking now just still the same day or the uh, within days of this all happening so i came out of the surgery and i was pretty groggy and um I slept for probably a day or two. Then I started to come with it and I saw my mum and dad there and I started to realise that, yeah, I'm in a bit of a pickle here. I can't feel my from my waist down still. I can't feel when I need to go to the toilet and I haven't eaten anything either. I'd, I'd had some ice cubes and that's about it. So, yeah, it's dawning on me pretty quickly that things are not looking great and the people around me in the other beds, they're actually... They're all screaming and they're having a, a really bad time because they're a, lot, they're a bit older. They didn't all have family members there. And I remember identifying with one of them who is still a very, very good friend of mine, Cam. He, um, yeah, he was having a really bad time. He was, he was very overweight. He was over probably 200 kilos and he'd had a truck accident. And so I'm hearing about all these stories around me thinking, oh, my goodness, my story has nothing on these guys. I started to think about what life's going to be like when I get back home and it all just hit me at once and I I didn't sleep for four or five days. 
you know, everything they gave me to help me sleep, just I burnt it off. I was sweating profusely. That was probably the hardest period physically um, and mentally as well was that uh, first initial four or five days. But after that, I didn't get much chance to think about it because I was up in the chair and I was into rehab, which was quite intense. Tell me about that. Initially, they, they got me up into an electric chair and I vomited everywhere because I'd been laying down for over a, probably around a week at this stage. And they said, that's quite normal, no worries. And so I'm try, starting to get around uh, in this electric chair and I can drive it, no problems. And then they, um, they hoisted me back into bed and I have a bowel accident. I think, what, what's going on here? And yeah, that then led to about four hours of uh, bowel movements then, and it was just horrific. Um, the whole thing, the nurse was there helping me and, and that, was, that really st- uh, ingrained in my mind that things are gonna be different from now on. The next thing is showering. So they offer me a sponge bath or would I like to just jump in a shower chair and sit under the shower head? Oh, and sorry, a third option was to have a shower bed. I think, oh, geez, that sounds all right, a shower bed. I remember them laying me on this bed and just wheeling me into the bathroom and just hosing me down like I was, a, a you know, a restaurant. <laughs> you know, just cleaning down after your shift, you know. Yeah, getting ready to go off to slaughter almost. Oh, that's horrible. So I, I made a very conscious decision that day that I will do everything I possibly can on my own as soon as I can. So the next morning... I said, no, just put me in a shower chair and I dropped the soap and I couldn't move. I couldn't bend my body to pick it up. So I nearly fell out of the chair trying to get it. In the end, I just gave up and I, I used something that was nearby. It might have been conditioner, I can't remember, but um, yeah, I just made sure that I was as independent as possible, as quickly as possible. So from there, you, you jump into a, a manual chair and you know some of the sensations starting to return into my legs. And um, I'm starting to feel when I need to go to the toilet a little bit more, which is really great. Is that because of the shock? That spinal shock is wearing off? Yeah, yeah. So the spinal shock's wearing off slowly. Sensations returning to different parts of my body. I can now feel one of my legs in certain patches. You know, a day later, I can move one of my legs. I can move a knee. I can feel my quad muscles. And they jump on that and, and we get into the gym and we're starting to do gym stuff. We're doing electrosensory therapy, you know, the, the electro um, sort of shocks to your legs to stimulate the nerves. And it's really a, a little bit of a race against time to, to get as much back as possible, as quickly as possible. We do that for about another week or two, I think, from memory. And then I'm off to a specific rehab facility, which is also in Victoria. So I have to, I just have to clarify, Joe, and, and excuse my naivety because I just don't know much about this, but if you've had a spinal injury and you can no longer walk, particularly the severity of the injury that you had, yeah. from what you're saying, you're starting to get sensation back and you're starting to be able to be able to move the lower part of your body in some yeah. way. Does that mean then that there's the possibility for you to be able to actually walk despite the fact that the doctors said you wouldn't be able to walk? I've got what's called an incomplete spinal injury. So that means that the spinal cord hasn't been completely severed like it would be for a complete injury. Um, so I've just had some partial severing and some really bad bruising. So as that shock and the bruising and, and that sort of thing is starting to heal uh, and to um, go down, Um, I'm getting that sensation back. So by the time I get to rehab, the doctors had said, you know, you'll never walk again, 
but anything you get from here is going to be a bonus. Wow. I learned later in life that they tell everyone that. That's something they say to everybody that has a spinal cord injury. Yeah, then we're off to this rehab facility and by the time I got there and got settled in, I was up in a walking frame with this harness attached to the roof and I'm, I'm walking with crutches. Wow. We're trying to get that those pathways, those neuro pathways firing and, and talking to each other and we're basically in the gym from nine to five every day uh, or doing something like wheelchair skills or trying new sports or learning as much as we can about how to get around in a chair. Were you getting stronger and stronger in your shoulders and arms and so forth? Because as a, a mountain bike rider, it would have been all calf muscles, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Is it changing your physique and changing uh, the strength that your body had? I was lucky that, yeah, I was riding mountain bikes and playing footy and doing fun runs and things like that before my accident. So I'd, I'd gone down to about 90 kilos and I was, I was feeling really healthy and really great um, physically. And um, when I had my accident, I lost something like 15 kilos from there, just not eating and the muscles atrophying away. And by the time I got to rehab, I'd I've got a photo of myself. I, I, I'm so gaunt and small. My arms are tiny, whereas before they were quite big. And I'd done weightlifting and gym stuff like that. And, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time for me to look at myself and think, wow, where have I disappeared to? Once again, I was offered mental health uh, assistance at this stage, and I I just brushed it off. No, I've got a job to do. I've got to get back to walking. I've got to get back to work and sport and everything like that. Yeah, it didn't work out that way, of course, straight away. At what point did you go back to Tasmania? So I was in Victoria for four months. I was away from family for that whole time. Mum and Dad could come over. Well, Mum stayed with me the whole time, sorry. Dad came over every now and then. He was the the main breadwinner of the house. I still had my savings from when I was uh, saving for a deposit on a house. And the cost of living in Melbourne is quite high, of course. And as I gained more and more independence, I started just jumping a taxi and go for a trip. Probably dangerous of me to do so, but... I'd just jump in the taxi and go to the local local shopping centre or I'd go into Melbourne or I'd go somewhere just to get away from the hospital because I had that internal drive and always had that internal drive to be the best I can be. I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but, um, yeah, I just wanted to be around the things I loved and, you know, there were some shops that I really liked visiting and started to get to know the people that worked there and things like that. Yeah, so it was an interesting time. I got to come back here to Tassie uh, at Christmas time in uh, 2009 to visit family and, um, you know, sort of give everyone a bit of an update. I was really lucky to be working at uh, Big W at the time and they'd had a, a, lo- a number of fundraisers for me. So I got to go and see my workmates and catch up with them and see some of the people that had been really instrumental in, in raising money for me, which was just, I couldn't believe that there were so many people that cared. I mean... GoFundMe and those sorts of things didn't exist at the time. Facebook had only just been in around for maybe six to eight months. Social media was really unheard of other than MySpace. <laughs> so there wasn't those sort of social networks. It was more about the face-to-face interactions. What, what did they say when, when you showed up in your wheelchair uh, back at your old workplace? Were they really supportive and proud of, of how far you'd come? Absolutely. A lot of people didn't really know what was going to happen. You know, I think some of them assumed I'd be back at work pretty much straight away. Some of them probably thought I'd never go back to work and certainly not be doing the same job as I had before. It was very easy to see that I couldn't walk again properly or, or, you know, as I had before. 
but they had no idea about the other aspects of my injury. And um, I mentioned earlier that I got out of a relationship prior to my accident and my girlfriend and I actually had started dating again since I was in hospital, which was not helpful at all. Um, yeah, that was also a, a very bad idea. <laughs> Gosh, so many changes. So did you go back to living with your family? Yes, yeah. So whilst I was over in, in Melbourne, still uh, wrapping up my rehab and um, mum was there with me, dad was making some of the modifications to the house that I'd need. So he built a ramp up to the front door and it's quite an old house. So yeah, couldn't really do too many changes, but um, made the bathroom a bit bigger. Uh, put shower um, handles in the in the bathroom for me, and yeah, made it as the best we possibly could for the circumstances we lived in. Can you get your wheelchair through doors and that sort of thing? Well, I, I was sent home with a, a chair that I could use for a period of time before my own arrived, but then there was a, de- a delay on the new chair, so I actually had that the higher chair for a year. Eventually, the new chair arrived, but it was misprescribed, so. They'd left, they hadn't ticked a box or something and I couldn't actually turn corners in the house without knocking things over. And I wasn't driving at this time, so I couldn't just duck down to the hospital or to the, the place where we, the mobility equipment hire place and, and say, oh, sorry, mate, you've, you've buggered this up. Can you fix it? Um, I had to rely on other people to give me a lift or public transport. And we were living in regional Tasmania at the time. You know, there was no buses. I didn't know how to use the bus and the chair either. It was... Uh, a really just uncertain time. So at what point did you start to get your feet? Because I know there was a turning point there for you. Could you yeah. tell me about that turning point? Yeah, well, actually, there's probably a few turning points. I remember there being specific times in my life when I've had to think to myself, well, we're either, either going to get on with it here or we're going to wallow and probably end up in a nursing home and they're dead. So the first turning point was probably when I was in hospital and I couldn't sleep all those nights. And then the next one was probably about three years post-injury. You know, I returned to work and that was a bad idea. I'd got, I'd, I went back too early and I ended up injuring myself uh, further. Not my spine, but um, some of the muscles around my back and I was being pushed to do that by my girlfriend at the time. And, and yeah, I started to do things as if I wasn't injured and that was probably a bit of stubbornness and that internal drive again. But... Yeah, about three years I said, look, I'm, I'm going to have a crack here and I think I moved out of home into a one-bedroom unit. I think I finished up my job. Um, I was receiving a, a, a disability pension to support myself. You had to relearn to cook everything and, you know, mum and dad couldn't just come and help me out of bed or, you know, couldn't give me a lift somewhere. So I, I was driving at this stage and I went along to a come and try day for a uh, rowing club and I thought, oh... I've never been a rower before. I'll give that a go. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. The feeling of being able to leave my my chair on the jetty and just float out into the Delt River, that was something special. And that was really where my love for sport was reignited. I think it took me about a year to get a a coach. And in that time, I was training. I was going to the gym. I was was getting ready for this new adventure that I was going to go on. Yeah, got there eventually. So... Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I, I've done a number of interviews with people who've had really major life-changing injuries. Yeah. And there's a, a lovely, lovely man up in Packsaddle, which is in remote New South Wales, who was telling me a story about his injury and a decision or a point in his life where 
he made a decision and he said to me, and I've always thought, gosh, that's really interesting. He said, when you have such a severe injury as he had, and as you've had very different injuries, but very much life impacting, he said, you can either lie down and say, woe is me, life is terrible, I give up, it's all, you know, it's all for naught, I can't do anything. And in his words, just lie down and die, you know, or you can grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, okay, get on with it. There's tons to do, there's places to go, people to meet, you know, life is going to go on, it's just going to be different. Yeah, absolutely. And, And finding that sport was one of those turning points again for me. It gave me a reason to get up out of bed and, you know, I got up and I went to training and loved every single second of it. And then I got to the point where I was identified as having a a bit of talent in the sport. So I started to get a bit more serious about training and and we started to embark on that pathway towards the Paralympics. Now, are we still talking rowing? Yes, still talking rowing. There's more sports down the track, of course, but um, yeah, rowing was, was that first initial step and I loved that elite sport aspect. I uh, went to nationals and I, I won state championships and just was so hungry for success and hungry to learn more about sport and elite sport. Once again, I still hadn't addressed the mental health demons that I had from previous, uh, prior my injury. So we're, we're talking oh, probably five or six years down the track now, crying myself to sleep over nighttime and not knowing why or not understanding what that meant or uh, how I could fix that. And hiding it from my family and friends as well. Yeah, that, that plays a bigger role later on in life for me. What did you do to address those those issues? I didn't. I didn't address them at all until I tried to take my own life. So I'd, I'd gotten myself into this monotony of training and I'd embarked on a really, really negative relationship with, with a girl. That pushed me over the edge. We then broke up and one night I said, look, I've, I've had enough here. I've... I sculled a bottle of scotch and I started to rummage through the medicine cabinet. It was like an out-of-body experience. It was like a movie and I was completely out of control and I didn't care. Luckily, I had made myself sick to get rid of what I'd swallowed and there was no negative effects there, thankfully. But at that stage, I knew something was wrong and I was doing it to try and get attention from the people closest to me to say something's wrong. I don't know what it is can you help me? And I was calling people in this drunken stupor and destroyed the house and just such a negative, negative thing to have happen. But I was just out of control and I said, look, I'm still not going to address these issues. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to book a trip to the mainland of Victoria and, and travel around Australia on my own, try and find myself along the way, take a break from training. And at this stage, I was pushing pretty pretty well towards going to the Rio Paralympics and I was probably only two years away from really making a big impact on on the squad and I threw that all away. I feel I still feel really bad about doing that to my coach. We've had conversations about that later in life and yeah, we're on the same page now. How did you get your mental health actually sorted out so that you were no longer roller coastering in life? Well once again I, I met a, a girl over there through friends and she was a pretty amazing individual. She'd only just been newly injured as well. And I could see that what she was going through was exactly what I was experienced, or I had experienced. 
post my injury. Oh, so she had a spinal injury as well? Yeah, yep. Just starting to find her way in the world. She was about a year post-injury. Yeah, we started dating and I could almost map exactly what she was going to say next or what was she was experiencing because I'd, I'd just gone through it myself. And so she got to the point where um, she returned to university. I stayed in Bendigo. I didn't go any further than Bendigo. I then had to think to myself, hang on a minute, what am I going to do at the moment when she's at uni? And so I started coaching a wheelchair basketball team and I still hadn't addressed the issues. It was only when things became really difficult in Bendigo and our relationship started to break down that I finally said, look, I think I really need to go and see uh, professionals about this. And best thing I could have done, it's, it saved my life. And then my relationship ended uh, in Victoria. I moved back to Tassie and I had those coping me- mechanisms in place finally to address what was going on, to identify when I'm having those feelings again or those bad days and then act upon them and, yeah, go about living finally. Look, that's that's fantastic. How many years on are we talking about then? Uh, we're talking about uh, probably nine years. Wow. I'm, I'm still shocked and surprised that I survived that long. And it was probably a bit of ignorance on my part. I, I just really didn't understand, you know, it's probably not okay to be crying yourself to sleep every night and just ignoring it the day after and, yeah, just being isolated away from everyone. And I was simply running away from those issues. Yeah. Not confronting them. And- if we move forward to today, my understanding is you're very active in the wheelchair footy community. You are um, have some serious talent. Ah. Um, I've seen a number of videos watching you play. Oh. Um, <laughs> do you still do any rowing at all? No, no rowing. I couldn't go back to it. I... I- attempted to be involved with the club again and it just felt so different and I felt ashamed of what I'd done to the club mm. and, and really abused those, that privilege that I had and so I, I couldn't do it. Right, but I've seen videos with you doing uh, what would be almost mountain bike riding but it's in almost like a tricycle yeah. kind of, what, what's that called? That's just adaptive mountain biking but that came uh, just last year. But when I came back to Tasmania, it was my opportunity to reignite the passion for sport that I had before. So I said yes to every single sport that I could. And I played wheelchair footy, athletics, mountain biking, uh, kayaking, geez, what else? Wheelchair basketball, wheelchair cricket. And now uh, I found a pathway potentially back to the Paralympics in in badminton as well. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. That's great. So I gave everything a go. It just... I wanted to make the most of the opportunities that I was presented with that I had not done uh, or not made the most of uh, in those first nine years of my injury. I saw almost see my life as, as this three-part series. It was pre-injury, injury, and now the good part. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. What an amazing story. Very inspirational. The Royal Flying Doctor Service has, you know, only had such a tiny little part to play in your story. I'm really glad that we were able to take you from Hobart to Melbourne. But really, the real courage in this story is you going from a life pre-accident all the way through uh, an adaptive change to figure out how to change almost everything within your lifestyle and get to a point now where you are 
a motivational speaker, where you are doing disability work. I understand you've even done educational programs in schools where you enlighten kids on what it's like for to be in a wheelchair and, and so yeah. forth. Is life good now? Life's good. It really is good. And it took so long to get here that I appreciate every single day and I fill it up to the brim with everything that I love. I love hobby. I love painting. I love sculpting. I love Lego. I love toy trains. Yeah, all the things that give me joy. You know, I'm with a very, very beautiful partner, Kirby. She just is the love of my life. We we just met on Tinder. We were both in situations where we were ready for, for love again. And yeah, that was, that was a big step. Yeah, we'll get married sometime. I've just got to ask her. Uh, <laughs> Life is good. Life is good. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you so much, Lana. I really appreciate time. And just last, I'd like to say that regardless of your ability, you can get out there and, and make it happen in the world and, and you can have an impact. Yeah, make the most of your opportunities while we've got them and uh, have a crack. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. My name is Joe, and I live in Canberra. I have listened to all of the Flying Doctor podcasts. Every podcast tells a unique story, and I am moved and inspired by each and every one of them. Keep up the amazing work that you do at the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Australia needs you. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.